Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Kristen Wood served at the Central Intelligence Agency for over 20 years. During her tenure, she worked in three of the agency's five directorates, Analysis, Operations, and Digital Innovation. Kristen was on our show several months ago to talk about what it is like to be an analyst at CIA, and she is back today as part of our series of episodes we are doing on real-life spy stories. She and I are going to chat about one of the most important analytic questions of my career, whether or not there was a link between Iraq and Al-Qaeda. We'll be right back with that discussion after a quick break. I'm Michael Morell. And this is an episode of Intelligence Matters Declassified, spy stories from the officers who were there. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite clear liners are doctor directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at bite.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Bite. Kristen, thanks for joining us again. It is great to have you back. In particular, thank you for joining us as part of our new series of episodes called Intelligence Matters Declassified. So it's great to have you back. Well, Michael, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be back, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. So unlike some of the other spy stories that we've told this one is about intelligence analysis, you know, it, which is not typically the stuff of spy novels, but I think this story does have its moments of drama and it certainly is important. Since analysts, Kristen, are taught that context is everything, let's let's start with some context. Where were you on 9/11? So, I was at the White House um when um, right before the 9-11 attacks, I'd been there briefing 
Vice President Cheney's uh, National Security Advisor, Scooter Libby, who is my principal for the President's Daily Brief. And so you I were left, a briefer at the time. I was a briefer at the time. I left there about eight in the morning, and we spent a lot of our briefing discussing why Al Qaeda was trying to curry favor with Taliban that the day before because they had assassinated a prominent uh, opponent, um, someone in the Northern Alliance. And we were mulling over why they had been involved in that. Um, And then after that, I went to what we all used to call the briefer corridor and was in typing in my feedback from the report when one of our fellow briefers, Dr. Rice's briefer, came into my tiny little office with this funny look on his face. And he said, Kristen, you need to come watch the TV. And I said, why? I mean, I'm obviously busy. And he said, there's something really going on on TV. And it reminds me of an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. And honestly, I was a little bit put out, but the look on his face had me um, concerned. So we went down the hall to look at the big TV. And that was when the second plane hit. Mm. And there were four or five of us circled around and we all looked at each other and instantly knew it was Al-Qaeda. So you were you were Scooter Libby's briefer and you also occasionally briefed Vice President Cheney. So you were Vice President Cheney's backup briefer as well, correct? Yes, that's right. So how would you describe each of them, Scooter Libby and Vice President Cheney, as consumers of intelligence? So I think both of them were very sophisticated consumers of intelligence as they'd both spent a fair amount of time in government. Um, Scooter, or I. Lewis Libby, but everyone called him Scooter, he's he's just wickedly smart. Uh, he had served under Deputy, Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz, who was his Yale professor and mentor for, for many years, but he'd served with them both at the State Department and Defense Department. And he was a litigator in between government gigs. Uh, I think Mary Madeline who was vice, one of Vice President Cheney's most senior officers, described him as Dick Cheney's Dick Cheney. And I think that was definitely true. Um, he asked great questions. He was persistent. He had a dry wit, um, which got to be fairly absurdic when he felt a piece wasn't balanced or perhaps left key questions unaddressed or perhaps didn't go along with his worldview. Um, I think, actually, he's the reason I was probably one of the least popular briefers in the whole team because he asked so many questions that required answers of agency officers, you know, the next day. So there was a whole lot of work that came from that. Vice President Cheney, I think, is one of the most experienced government officials with whom I have ever worked. I mean, he'd been in government for more than 25 years by the time he was the vice president. He was a congressman, the White House chief of staff, the Secretary of Defense, and then spent years as the CEO of Halliburton, managing a big multinational corporation. So he brought this deep strategic understanding of issues over the decades to each daily engagement. And I think he also had a really strong understanding of our challenges at the time. So I think both of them spent a whole lot of their initial time really trying to catch up, if you will, on issues from where they had left in the last time in government. I think that Vice President Cheney has been characterized in a lot of ways and mischaracterized in many as a, as the person sitting opposite him, I found him to always be kind and funny and genteel and thoughtful about issues and really focused on the person in the room in front of him. 
So Kristen, can you describe both Libby and the vice president's level of interest in Iraq prior to 9-11? Yes. Both of them were very concerned about uh, Saddam's uh, weapons of mass destruction capabilities. And given his strong ties to supporting terrorism in the region and elsewhere, you know, the potential for cooperation um, with al-Qaeda. Um, if you remember, Michael, at the time, there were no-fly zones in place in both northern and southern Iraq post the first Persian Gulf War. Right. And the continued violations of the no, those no-fly zones caused them concern. I think overall, they were looking at Saddam as someone who could create trouble for the U.S. down the road. So their focus of their questions really were about the political elite, such as it was about the strengths and weaknesses of the opposition, I think maybe looking for options. And then I felt like most of it was, here's where we left the story with Saddam oh so long ago. You know, where is he now? So so post 9-11, so after 9-11, when was the first time you heard one of them raise the possibility of a link between Iraq and al-Qaeda? So the first time I heard about a link between Iraq and Al-Qaeda and the 9-11 attacks was on 9-12, the day after. <laughs> the day after. Um, yeah, it, but it wasn't from either of my two principals. It was from um, the Pentagon and one of the two senior principals there. So Kristen, tell us the, the Muhammad Atta in Prague story, maybe starting with a reminder of who, Ma, who Atta is yes. or was. So Muhammad Atta was the lead hijacker. Um, in the 9-11 attacks and really oversaw um, the rest of the team. And the Mohammed Atta and Prague story is one where a source told the Czech intelligence service who shared it with us that he had seen Mohammed Atta in Prague in April 2001 meeting with an Iraqi intelligence service agent. And they even had a picture of the engagement yeah, the picture was really grainy, uh, but I think the agency's initial answers at the time were, well, it's possible and we need to do more work. And we and we told we told senior officials about this information. We didn't keep it from them. We yes. told them and we told them we were trying to figure it out. Yes. And I know when I mean, you spoke to President Bush and said, you know, here's this important information. We're still working to track it down, but you should know. And, and the rest of us followed suit. So I think we did that work. The FBI did a lot of work on its own and liaison went back to assess the accuracy of the report as well as the sources information. And what happened when we were able to definitively answer this was Czech liaison service or the Czech intelligence service retracted the report and they said they didn't believe it was the case. The FBI looking at uh, Mohammed Atta's travel records and his ATM records determined that he was in Virginia Beach and then Coral Springs, Florida at the time. And so that proof, quote unquote, of Iraqi involvement really from an intelligence perspective died off because we judged the story not to be credible. But it really continued to have legs well beyond that because I think some folks who believed this was the case, that Iraq had had a role in the 9-11 attacks, um, continued to use the reporting of this potential visit for, for even years afterwards. What about, what about a group called Ansar al-Islam? Tell us about that group and tell us about that story. 
No, absolutely. So Ansar al-Islam, or AI as we called them, was a Sunni extremist organization in northern Iraq that was made up mostly of Iraqi Kurds with the goal of creating one true Islamic caliphate. Um, there were a consolidation of various regional terrorist groups and they, who really concluded that they needed to work together to give them greater strength and to widen their recruiting network. There's no question they found safe haven in northern Iraq, and they welcomed fighters fleeing Afghanistan because by 2002, there had been any number of bombing attacks in Afghanistan. Um, and among those who found safe haven was Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who became a prominent figure for us as a senior associate and collaborator who was loosely affiliated with al-Qaeda. Uh, Ansar al-Islam was one of the, that, that relationship, Ansar al-Islam's ties to al-Qaeda were a big question in terms of al-Qaeda's ties to Iraq. So I think we looked at Ansar al-Islam from, in terms of its activity there and Iraqi knowledge of it and cooperation with it in a lot of different ways. So Kristen, things like the Prague story and the AI story ended up generating an awful lot of questions from both the vice president's office and from the Department of Defense about a possible link between Iraq and al-Qaeda. And, and let me ask two questions of you. The first is, how well do you think we as an agency, as CIA, did in answering those questions? That's, the, that's my first question. Okay. Um, so the answer, and I'm just being very honest, is not well. I think we, as we were learning more about each story, we would publish more on each story without giving a sense of why the story had changed. And then there were two major offices that reported on both sets of things. And depending on which office had the pen, so to speak, the tone of the material was different. And so as a briefer at the time, and, and I remember you experienced this as well, it was a little bit like, um, it was a little mind twisting because the things were so different depending on how it got written. And so for policymakers, as they're reading this, it felt like we were not being consistent with what we were having to say. So it, I think it caused them to focus in and dig in a lot more to ask very specific questions as a result. So, Kristen, my second question is, do you think the policymakers, particularly in the vice president's office and, and at DOD, were intellectually open to the answer being no, there wasn't a relationship? Or do you think they wanted the answer to be yes? And if so, why? What's your sense? Um, no and yes. <laughs> I think in the, they believed from the beginning that there was a tie between the two organizations. And this is where I think this vice president's office was quite different from many um, that preceded it, in that some of his staff actually acted as intelligence analysts uh, in, within the office of the vice president. And so what happened was information came to them from DOD and their own officers acting as intelligence officers um, to them. And it was cherry picked, which by what I mean by what I mean by that is that they didn't look at the whole of the data. They were looking for parts of the story or reports that confirmed what they believed was true. 
versus looking at the data and aggregate to say what story was it was it going to tell us. So as you know, intelligence analysts do the latter all the time. It's what is the data and what story does it tell? And I think by the time this story about Iraq's role in terrorism got fairly far down the road, they believed based on the cherry picked data that they had a they had the right story. So tell us about something called the murky paper. What was it? Where did it come from? Why did we do it? And what did it say? Oh, the murky paper. That came out at the end of my tenure as a briefer. And it was written in the context of some of the administration using questionable intelligence reports to justify their views that Iraq was somehow complicit in the 9-11 attacks. So the then DDI, Jamie Misick, um, the DDI, uh, the Deputy Director for Intelligence, is the agency's most senior analyst. She ordered us to write the most forward-leaning paper we could based on the intelligence at hand, meaning if we were to apply serious analytic tradecraft to the data set, how far could we push ourselves towards the case that Iraq had been involved in 9-11? It's known as the murky paper because it was titled Iraq and Al-Qaeda, Interpreting a Murky Relationship. And I want to just briefly read the scope note because it's important, because it was such a different paper. The scope note says, this intelligence assessment responds to senior policymaker interest in a comprehensive assessment of the Iraqi regime links to Al-Qaeda. Our approach is purposefully aggressive in seeking to draw connections on the assumption that any indication of a relationship between these two hostile elements could carry great dangers to the United States. So when I delivered this paper to Scooter Libby, who had been asking for it on a daily basis for weeks, it was on a warm Saturday morning on his back patio in McLean because his family was inside and they weren't cleared. So it was very well written and I felt that it was the agency had done a very good job using analytic tradecraft and moving as far as they could on the analytic line. Unfortunately, that day, as I handed him this paper with that as a tee up, a bird pooped on it. (laughs) And he looked at me deadpanned and said, well, apparently there are other opinions. So I, (laughs) right? How does that even happen? So I took that copy of the paper myself and handed him my copy, but I kept that bird poop copy for quite some time because I thought, well, you know, maybe this was a sign of things to come, but comic relief was always in short supply at that time. We're going to take a quick break. Then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Kristen. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So what did the murky paper say about the relationship between Iraq and Al-Qaeda? So, Did it say there was a relationship? It did not. It said that there were contacts 
And there perhaps had been some training, but there was no direction. There was no operational control. And that while Ansar al-Islam and others may have found safe haven there, it was not um, a partnership. But it was too forward-leaning for this. The Office of Terrorism Analysis wrote this. It was too forward-leaning for others in other parts of the Directorate of Intelligence. So actually there was um, a complaint of politicization that was forwarded to the agency ombudsman related to the paper because they felt... So do you think... Go ahead. I was just, just going to ask, you know, um, hindsight's twenty twenty. but do you think that it was the right thing to have done, the murky paper, uh, in retrospect? So on a strictly Monday morning quarterbacking perspective for now... Probably not. Um, but I understand at the time we were under such pressure to, to examine the data and the policymakers view was so wildly different from ours. I think the DI leadership team was looking for a way to see, to show, even if we go as far as we could using tradecraft, we don't come to that viewpoint so I actually think it was a pretty creative approach at the time to deal with this daily drumbeat and daily conflict. But maybe now, you know, if I were to be in a position like that now, I don't know that I would do it because the maelstrom that followed and the politicization charge really created some problems so, as a result. Yeah. So after that, you soon after that, you left the briefing job. Where did you go? Um, well, as, as you know, <laughs> I do know. Um, yeah, you do know. I, um, moved on to become an executive assistant in the DI front office. So your executive assistant and as well as Jamie's and Scott White's, who was the acting or the assist, assistant director. And we won't, we won't ask you what you thought of the people that you worked for. We'll just skip that part. But but so so the question I want to ask you is you're still in the mix, right, on on all of these issues, on all these Iraq issues and the Iraq Al-Qaeda issues. You you're still following the questions we're getting and what we're doing every day, correct? Right. And then it was more trying to support you and your team in in making sure that the whole of the agency's responses on this was incorporated so that we were giving the whole story. But I think that's also part of the reason I have a much more much more understanding of the reasons behind writing the murky paper is that the, the political pressure on there was so high. And I think we were all concerned about we're going to war with Afghanistan. We have to stop the next terrorist attack. And there's this potential with Iraq and adding it to the 9-11 response. So then you're, you're the executive assistant for a while. And then we move you. We tell you, you're not going to be the executive assistant anymore. We're going to make you the chief of a really important team of analysts. Tell us about that. Oh, well, speaking of pressure, um, <laughs> so you make it sound so logical. Um, so I think you and Scott White decided I should have the job of being the chief of the Office of Terrorism Analysis, a rock branch. And I believe that you both came to my office and asked me if I would do it. And I was reluctant. And you both said you would start throwing things at my office until I accepted <laughs> it. And you did. And then I did. 
And I think that was a really crazy way to get a job. Was I really that bad as an EA? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, we wanted you to do this really important Iraq thing. But it was I, all I, about that. I actually think it was, I was really fortunate to come into that position, having the strategic understanding of where the administration was, where our record was, and then what your priorities and Jamie's priorities were. I think the disadvantages was I, I, disadvantage were that I had no management experience. And when I walked in the first day, I understood where the mixed messaging came from because there were so few people working that issue because understandably everyone's focusing on Al-Qaeda, that the Iraq piece of it was very small. But very quickly, you and Jamie made sure we had the people we needed. So within two weeks, we had two dozen people more doing a 24-7 operation to finally get enough expertise to dig into the problem. And I think it was a really rare opportunity at an organization that's been around as long as the agency has to build a, an analytic bottom line from the ground up and with a group of people who knew nothing about Iraq. And while for most people that would be an a disadvantage, I think coming in with fresh eyes and without any biases actually helped us get to uh, the place that we ultimately did on the issue. And I think the, the PDBs and the PDB memos and all of the things we had to write really forced us to crystallize our viewpoint on you know that day. But I think it's actually why um, Vice President Cheney and uh, the National Security Advisor um, Dr. Rice and Libby made so many trips to the agency to understand Iraq issues on a deeper level. And I think we, we took it as a sign of how seriously they were looking at responding to Iraq was they spent so much of their valuable time on it. So you couldn't, right, just build the analysis from the bottom up because the murky paper was out there, right? And there were the charges of politicization. The murky paper at the end of the day itself from an analytic perspective was a bit murky. So we decided on the leadership of the analytic side of the agency decided that we should do another paper on Iraq and terrorism, and your team got the assignment to do that. So tell us about that. Right. So it, it made a lot of sense. What you're talking about is the murky paper was really the only strategic look at the relationship. And so what we needed to do is go back and talk about Iraqi support for terrorism. So where the murky paper focused on just Iraq and Al-Qaeda, the, the Iraq support for terrorism paper looked, for, looked at its history and its support for a wide range of terrorist organizations throughout the Middle East, and also at its relationship or lack of it with Al-Qaeda. But from an analytically sound focus on tradecraft of what do we really believe about this, it took several months to write with a host of analytic and operational partners weighing in. And I think at the time, it was one of the strongest examples of collaboration and analytic rigor there was, and, and in part because there was real conflict between two of the offices about Saddam and the potential for him to have been involved with Al-Qaeda. And so knowing that everything was going to be checked and double-checked and challenged, I think, forced us to be very rigorous in everything we described from the sources, from the source quality to our our confidence in the judgments we made. The review process um, was a little cleaner, I think, for the result of all that conflict. I mean, you were the one of the first DI front office reviewers, so maybe 
you have a, an optic of how it came to you and then, you know, kind of how it stood the test of time. So, so what did it say about the relationship between Iraq and Al Qaeda? First, first pre nine 11, pre nine 11. So it said that, and based on sources of varying reliability with many caveats that we, there was, there were a number of reports on training, although most of the reports focused on plans for training versus actual training, that uh, uh, Ansar al-Islam, which was loosely tied to al-Qaeda, had found a safe haven there from which they were doing very crude chemical, biological experiments, that there had been contacts between the two, al-Qaeda and, and Saddam and the Baghdad regime, but that they were both wary of each other that there was no operational cooperation. In terms of leadership conversation, so a, a, a conversation between Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden, two prominent detainees, KSM, as you know, very prominent. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Abu Zubaydah both said that there were, there were no such contacts, at least in their knowledge and given their prominence. We believe that their assessments were credible. So just just one thing I know, which you know is true, I just want to make sure our, our, our listeners know, AI, Ansar al-Islam, while finding safe haven in Iraq, that was actually in Kurdish territory that, that Saddam did not control, correct? That's true. And, you know, near, not too far from Mosul, which was a city that, unlike many other places, was, had a lot, it was, it was multicultural. So they had Arabs and people from all over the Middle East that operated out of there. So it was a much more permissive environment, both because of the no-fly zone, but also because it's in the heart of Kurdish territory, as you noted. So pre-9-11, it said there were some contacts, but at the end of the day, no operational relationship, no Iraqi complicity in 9-11, no Iraqi foreknowledge of 9-11. What did it say? What did it say about the post 9-11 relationship, particularly with, with regard to, to this guy, Zarqawi, that you mentioned very briefly earlier? So Zarqawi is a, such an interesting figure because at the time, pre, pre 9-11, he was in Herat, Afghanistan but he wasn't a partner of Al-Qaeda because, frankly, he thought they were too moderate and too focused on the United States. And bin Laden's team thought Zarqawi was a thug, you know, maybe even a Jordanian intelligence plant because he'd been in Jordanian jails for so long. And really even too extreme for them because he also believed that the Shia needed to be exterminated. So pre-9-11, Ansar al-Islam did not have Al-Qaeda-linked people attached to it other than people flowing through. Post 9-11, because Zarqawi had to flee from Afghanistan and chose to go to Iraq, it it becomes murkier. Sorry to use a word that we've already decided is difficult. (laughs) But um, he, he moved there and... It was purposeful because he believed after 9-11 attacks that the United States is going to invade Iraq. And he wanted to be there to cause us pain when we did. 
And his presence there drew in new fighters and equipment from more than two dozen countries. So by 2002, Zarqawi, loosely affiliated with Al-Qaeda, but not not a a subject to Al-Qaeda or bin Laden, was playing with crude crude toxins lab and things like cyanide gas and aerosolized ricin. And we're all very grateful that none of them are chemists as some of their experiments, as we heard about them from sources, were more like taking stuff out of the fridge and putting it together to see if it worked. Um, But they did become very active in terrorist attacks. They beheaded people, particularly Shia. And once the U.S. was on the ground there, they would attack coalition forces. And we really focused on him all the more because in October 2002, he paid two men to gun down Lawrence Foley, a USAID rep in Amman, Jordan, and assassinated him. So one of the questions that comes out, comes up often is, well, is Zarqawi's Al-Qaeda just make the two go together? But they, it, it did not, they did not go together until late 2004 when he decided to swear allegiance or bayat to bin Laden. And bin Laden characterized him as the emir of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. So the organization changed from AI to Al-Qaeda in Iraq. I just want to ask, what was your assessment of the link between Zarqawi, you know, now firmly in Iraq and quite active, his his relationship with the Iraqi government? Great question. We saw reports related to this, but we never saw what was great evidence. We judged that the IIS, the Iraqi intelligence service, was so good that they had to know all Zarqawi was there. As we said, it, it was a reasonable place for them to be because lack of less access and Mosul was so diverse. We also know that he sought after the Herat bombing, he had some injuries and he needed to seek medical treatment in Baghdad for several months and that some of his fighters were there with him. So many of the administration thought this was proof of Saddam's complicity, uh, but we never saw evidence of the complicity. And I think back. And you did not. Go ahead. Yeah, and you did not say there no. was complicity in the paper that no. you wrote. So, so, what happened, Kristen, when this Iraq and terrorism paper was disseminated? It uh, was fairly ugly, um, as I'm sure you remember. Scooter Libby called. Uh, Jamie Mystic and demanded that it be rescinded, um, thought it was not helpful. And it created a, quite a storm on the seventh floor because um, Jamie stood by the analysts and said, I'm not going to rescind this paper. And I believe she talked to uh, John McLaughlin, who at the time was the deputy director. And they called, is it, Dr. Rice or Dr. Hadley, do you remember? So I think it was Steve Hadley, yeah. And told him the paper was staying. And what I thought was interesting is we never heard the end of that um, on in the Iraq branch because we kept getting so many taskings and information that was classified was leaked and then we were asked to write papers on what we assessed on the leaked information. So it was a very frustrating circle. But I understand, or at least I recall that uh, President Bush had a different take. Yeah, he wanted he wanted uh, he wanted CIA to stand by what it believed to be the truth. And I think when we heard that, 
mean, some of the people on my team actually were in tears because we were so exhausted and just trying to do the best job we could to play the information, show the information as it was and not as anyone wanted it to be, um, that it just felt like an incredible validation of understanding that we weren't trying to play politics. We were just trying to play it straight. And it was honestly nice to be able to move forward to focus on force protection because U.S. troops were there and the current terrorism threats. So, Kristen, I want to ask you two more questions. The first is Secretary Powell's presentation to the United Nations. You know, most of what people focus on in that presentation was Iraqi weapons of mass destruction, but there was a small part at the end about Iraq and terrorism. And I I just want to read you a couple of sentences from it and then ask you a question. Uh, So, quote, But what I want to bring to your attention today is the potentially much more sinister nexus between Iraq and Al-Qaeda. Iraq today harbors a deadly terrorist network headed by Zarqawi, an associate and collaborator of bin Laden and his Al-Qaeda lieutenants. Says Zarqawi traveled to Baghdad in May of 2002 for medical treatment, stayed in the capital for a couple of months while he recuperated. During his during his stay, there was a bunch of his, his associates there with him. And then it says, we are not surprised that Iraq is harboring Zarqawi and his subordinates. So that gives a completely different feel, right, between the relationship between Zarqawi and al-Qaeda and then the relationship between Zarqawi and, and the Iraqis than was in your paper. Yes. So how did that happen? That is such a good question. So as he was giving the speech, we in our branch, we all had copies of the approved draft. So as many of your listeners may know, Secretary Powell came to the agency to sit down and go through sentence by sentence and intelligence report, right, intelligence report, each aspect of the speech. And certainly the focus was on WMD as it should have been, but that also applied for the terrorism story. And so we had the last draft of the speech. And as we're listening to it and looking at the draft, they didn't match. And we all were just dumbfounded by this description. So something happened between us and the, the speech being presented. I don't. Yeah. And I'm, go ahead. I'm exactly, I'm exactly in the same place. I don't know. I don't know what happened. I, I don't know how that happened. Another question. I, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how you and your analysts felt when you turned on the Sunday, uh, the Sunday shows, and on the Sunday shows were senior administration officials uh, talking about links between Iraq and Al Qaeda that were simply inconsistent with uh, what was written in the Iraq and terrorism paper. I think it's fair to say greatly frustrated because the intelligence reporting did not support the viewpoints that they were expressing and they knew that and it happened anyway. And I think this is, goes back to a point we discussed earlier, which is their staff, some of their staff members were acting as intelligence analysts without the tradecraft or the training. And it's easy to think that smart people can figure it out because smart people can figure out a ton of things. But, and this is about being rigorous and careful and, 
assessing sources and, and looking at the whole body of the reporting versus just the parts and pieces that support your position. And I think because they had just been briefed on the parts and pieces that support their position, they didn't accept what the, the body of the intelligence reporting said. So it really was greatly frustrating to hear this. And actually that continued for years, as you know. Yeah, still does actually, still does. <laughs> Just one more question, Kristen, you've been terrific. So what was it What was it like to conduct analysis when you know that it may contribute to the nation going to war? What does that feel like? So I have goosebumps as you say that. Um, it was an incredible honor and privilege and responsibility. And I think we all understood the consequences. So it's not about being pro-war or anti-war, but it's making sure that the people who have to make that, probably the most difficult call you have to make as a national leader, had the intelligence information they needed to support it. And it's one of those cases where we all understood the consequences so well that in personal lives didn't matter, working 14 hours a day, six or seven days a week, for months and months and months and months, it didn't matter because the we could not go to war for the wrong reason, if that's what, what the decision was. So I think it's, as much as it seems like we've been war, at war continuously for 20 years, before that it was it was a bit of a rarity. And wanting to make sure that you're doing the best you can came at a great cost, I think, for a lot of people um, in Counterterrorism Center and elsewhere. But we wouldn't have had it any other way. And just to just to sum up, when when all the after action groups looked at your analysis, the the consensus was overwhelming that you guys got it right, and that uh, some of the policymakers, not all of them, but some of the policymakers misused that analysis in their conversations with the American public. That's right. Um, the SS, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence did the post, the pre-war intelligence assessment, and they came through and said it was fair and balanced. And it was interesting. One of the senior staffers I ran into a couple years later, and she said that there was some discussion about politicizing some of it, not not for the purpose of politicizing it, but angling it so it told a better story. And she said the senior staffers all walked in and said, we'll quit if you do that. So yet another part of government doing what it needs to do to represent the, the data as we have it faithfully. I was really touched to hear that, proud of them. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing this uh, very important story with our listeners. Thank you. Oh, thank you for the invitation. It was great to chat with you, Michael. Thank you. That was Kristen Wood. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. 
Survivor's back, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladaris. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.